Good morning, Bethel. Good morning, visitors. Any of you that are uh, joining us, whether it's for the weekend and you're visiting family or just here for the first time, it's good to have you here. Um, we're in the middle of a series called Gospel Culture, and um, so I'll explain what that means for those of you that maybe this is uh, your first time here. So <clears throat> let me use a quote here from a book that we've been encouraging people to read. It's called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. And he says this, gospel doctrine, the truths about the gospel, creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. And so it's something that we have to cultivate. It's something that we have to learn. It's something that we have to work at. Um, and so that's what the focus of this series is, to consider what makes for a gospel culture. What are the ingredients of a gospel culture? What produces this kind of culture? And obviously the simple answer is the gospel does. So let's just remind ourselves of what that is. Um, hopefully uh, this is review, but I don't think we can ever review the gospel too much. Um, it's everything to us. So it starts with God. Everything starts with God. He made everything. He is before all things. He made everything for his glory. He made us in his image. He is awesome and worthy and glorious. He's worthy of all of our worship and obedience. He's the center of the universe. He created it all. He sustains it all. He's infinitely greater than every good gift that we can enjoy on this planet. And then it moves to, to us, you and me, humans made in his image. And from the very beginning, our first parents were, they bought the lie that somehow this God who made everything in our capacity for joy and happiness and satisfaction was holding out on us. And there was some good apart from him, and they turned from him, and we've been doing it ever since. We are like spring-loaded to doubt his goodness and to, to try to find our happiness and satisfaction everywhere else. And so we fall short of his glory. We exchange his glory and goodness for stuff that can't satisfy us. That's what sin is, is trading down from the glory of God to all these other things that we think can satisfy us. And so we're all like sheep that have gone astray to our own way. We deserve to just be left to our foolish rebellion, to reap the consequences for eternity of our turning away from God, the only one who we really need. And so he could have just let that happen, but instead this great God, in his great love, he came after us. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. This is God with us. We couldn't save ourselves. It took God to save us. Jesus was fully God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with us. Fully man because we needed a human substitute to take our place, to take our punishment that we deserve. So it starts with God. We messed it up. God comes in Christ to rescue us and save us. He is so loving. He so loved this world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, that's the response to the gospel that's required. If we want to get in on this, good news, 
we have to turn from our sins. We have to turn from, you know, are, are you okay with this? Like the broken cistern that can't satisfy your spiritual thirst? You just have to, you have to get out of there and you have to drink at the fountain. Is that okay? Is that really, that, that shouldn't be hard. If we realize that we're trying to lick rust off the bottom of a broken cistern in trying to find our satisfaction anywhere but God, Repentance is just getting out of the cistern. Faith is drinking. I'm the, I'm the living water, Jesus said. I'm the bread of life. So, that's the gospel. Should that message change anything <laughs> about the way that we interact with each other, about the way that we relate to one another, about the, the kind of cultural dynamics in a church community or in a Christian family? So what's the gospel supposed to produce? Again, let me quote from Ortland here. I love this. Gospel doctrine creates gospel cultures called churches where wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone. But it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel-defined church is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself. This is great. The church is like a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance. So thus far in the series, we've seen how we need to keep in step with the gospel. Even the apostle Peter was influenced in Galatians 2 to shrink back and create these little factions and cliques in the church. And he needed to be confronted by the Apostle Paul because he was acting like a hypocrite. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. And so that gospel truth should impact gospel relationships in the church. There's no room for partiality. There's no room for shrinking back from one another for whatever reason. There's no room for Jesus plus you need to, you know, do this or that in order to be in. So that was the first week. And then we looked at Jesus' humble Christ-like service, washing his disciples' feet, and how if we know his love like that for us, humble, servant-hearted love, then that works itself out in our communal dynamics. Then we looked at 1 John 4. We love because he so loved us. And so it's his love poured out through us as we love one another. And then last week we looked at Romans 14 and 15, how we need to welcome one another. It's so easy for us to, to fixate, instead of on the gospel, we fixate on secondary, tertiary issues. And then we, we disagree with each other and then we, we kind of divide up into our little you know, groups, subgroups on disputable matters. And it's just ugly. No, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see how the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, the truths of the gospel creates a certain kind of welcoming, loving culture. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Now this week we're going to add another facet that's vitally important in it. And it ties in to what we considered last week and builds on it. Okay, So this week we're going to actually lay two, two texts side by side because it's really helpful to see them right beside each other. So here's what you need to do. Put your finger in 1 Corinthians 10. So if you're using the Bible in the pew, you can find that on page 958. So put your finger in there. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at Galatians 1. Well, actually, we're going to look at Galatians 1 first, but 
Um, Galatians 1.10, that's on page 972. So just keep your finger in both of those places because we'll be going back and forth between those two um, as we consider this additional ingredient in how to cultivate a gospel culture. So let's just look at them. Let me read them both one after the other, and then we'll dive in. Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now flip over to Galatians. Same guy speaking. He wrote both these letters. One to the Christians in Corinth. Now this other one to the Christians in Galatia, the church in Galatia. One ten. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? (laughs) If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Wait a second. So on the surface, these two texts almost seem to be at odds with each other. Do you see it? Should you please God or people? Which is it? Well, I think if we dig in a little bit, we're going to see how vitally important that they both are to cultivating and protecting a culture in our church that brightly reflects the gospel. So let's look first at Galatians 1.10. That's point number one. There's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow um, the outline on the slides behind me here. So point number one, the approval of God, pleasing God as servants of Christ. Okay, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man man as in mankind, um, people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So what's going on here in Galatia? There were some false teachers coming in. They were influencing the church with a message that was a twisted gospel, a false gospel. So Paul is really concerned about these people. In fact, look up at verse 6. You can see really quickly just by reading a few verses here what's going on. Paul writes, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. That's basically what he's saying. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So If the Galatians bought those lies that these false teachers were selling, they would be led astray. And because those false teachers were trying to lead the people away from the true gospel, they were also leading them away from Paul, the true servant of Christ. So Paul could have gotten nervous and he could have, you know, flattered them and tried to turn on the charm to bring them back to his side. But he knew that telling the Galatians what they wanted to hear was not what they needed to hear. And Paul was too loving to let potential heat and opposition keep him from saying and doing the most loving thing. Just like a good parent sometimes has to say the thing that is going to really frustrate the child, not because you relish exasperating your child, but because They don't know what they need. And you need to tell them what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. 
Okay, so Paul wasn't a people pleaser. He wasn't codependent on the Galatians. He wasn't in anyone's, anyone's pocket. He wasn't a chameleon. He was no one's yes man. Okay, he was a servant of Christ and Christ alone. What mattered most to Paul was the approval of God, doing what pleased God. And because he had God's pleasure, he had been justified by faith, he knew who he was, he could handle whatever opposition might come his way. So ultimately, if God was pleased with him, it didn't matter who was displeased, and so he could speak the truth and let the chips fall. So for us, I mean, that's why he's saying, I'm going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. And so for us, if we fear people more than God, if you or if I want to please people more than God, that's really dangerous. Remember when Jesus said, you know, whoever wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So left unchecked, fear of man can have eternal consequences. Okay, so not only is it dangerous to each of us if we yield to that, but also we won't be able to love people if we are fearful of what they might think of us, if we are beholden to them in that sense, if we need their approval. If you need someone to be happy with you, you will not always be able to love them. On the other hand, the gospel actually can set us free from that slavery of what people think of us. C.S. Lewis had this profound statement that he made um, it was at the, near the end of Mere Christianity. He said, these people who are infected with the new infection, Christians, um, he said, they love you more and need you less. And then he put some parentheses, we must get over wanting to be needed. In some people, that is the hardest temptation to resist. So flip, sorry, this is one other place I want you to look at here to see this unpacked, where Paul's freedom came from to speak the truth, even if it was a confrontational message and a hard thing for his audience to hear. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. It's on page 986. So before he got to Thessalonica, <laughs> he got beat up in Philippi. So imagine getting beat up for telling the truth, and then you go to the next place. Do you think you might have some pressure on you to, I think I'm going to tone this down a little bit. <laughs> okay? No, he didn't tone it down. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. We wanted you to have what you needed to hear. No matter what the con consequence for, for our well-being was. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, more conflict. For our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So how do you do this, Paul? Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to use flattery to get a following. <laughs> we didn't seek glory from you. 
We want you to know the glory of God. <laughs> we want you to know the grace of God. So we're going to tell you the truth, even if it means we get beat up for it. So what was the power to do that? Just as we've been approved by God. They knew who they were. They were secure in their relationship with God, and so they could speak the truth even to their own hurt. Okay? So seeking the approval of people is, you must have lost sight of how wonderful and glorious it is to have the approval of God. That must not be real to us. When we give way to fear of people, people-pleasing, that kind of thing, it's because the approval of God is not looming large in our view. We need the, the gospel truth of there is no condemnation. You are justified forevermore. And if, if you know that security deep down in your bones, then you can speak the truth. And even if people frown and reject you, you still are safe and secure in your identity as a Christian. So it gives us soul-level stability and ballast. Do you know who you are? Or are you like a chameleon? Are you constantly kind of reacting and responding afraid of what people might think? We can be blown and tossed by the winds of human approval and fear the rejection and disapproval of people. And you know that's slavery, right? We're getting our identity, our security too much from horizontal dynamics rather than vertical dynamics that become internal dynamics that set us free and make us bold. So the whole point of the gospel is to bring this deep soul level confidence and security and identity and it ends up freeing us to love people. Because sometimes love means that you have to stand against someone's beliefs or attitudes or actions or words in order to truly love them. So if relational peace and acceptance is king in your life and you're bowing to that instead of to Jesus, then you won't take the risk to love people with truth or to rebuke or challenge because you're going to just be too afraid of the loss. And that can be true inside the church or outside the church. Inside the church when we don't deal with stuff we need to deal with. Outside the church when we, you know, Talk to people about Jesus. Tell them the best news in the world. It's so easy to shrink back because we're afraid of what people might think of us. Okay? So, if we're going to create a gospel culture, the approval of God has got to be more important to us than the approval of people. Pleasing God has to trump pleasing people. We've got to be faithful servants of Christ, refusing to bow to any other master. So that is a vital ingredient in the recipe for gospel culture. Now, does that orientation of soul make us people who are cold and stoic and not caring what people think? Well, let's look at the second text now, okay? Point number two, the glory of God pleasing everyone, really? Servant of all? So flip back to 1 Corinthians 10. And rather than starting in verse 33, let's just back up two verses and start in verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no unnecessary offense. He's been talking about how we shouldn't put stumbling blocks in other people's road and so forth. So give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. And then look at 11.1. 1. 
This isn't just for super Christians, this orientation. This is for everybody. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. So this is where it's right on the heels of what we considered last week. In Romans 15, you don't have to turn there, but Romans 15, 1 to 3, Paul said, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up because Christ didn't please himself. So because Christ did not please himself, we, if we're following Christ, live the same way, seeking the advantage of others, seeking to please everyone and everything that we do. So have you ever heard a Christian say to you, or maybe have you ever said to others, well, you can't be all things to all people? Um, I've heard that like a lot of times. Actually, that's kind of exactly what Paul's saying is, no, really. Like, I'm not kidding. This is what it looks like to be a normal Christian. All things to all people. In fact, look back at 9.19. For though I am free from all, free in the sense that I'm not beholden to anyone, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And then look down at verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. (laughs) Or look down at 1024. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. That is Christ-like Christian maturity. That's normal Christianity. And that is vital. It's a vital ingredient in gospel culture. So all things to the glory of God, verse 31. All things to please everyone, verse 33. Servant of all, not seeking our own advantage, but the good of our neighbor. I mean, I don't know about you, but that is like a really tall order. It's impossible on our own steam. If we're going to live like this, we have to be deeply rooted in the truths of the gospel. They have to be real to us. We have to just be overwhelmed with how Jesus did this for us. He was in the form of God, and he didn't, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held onto and used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing for us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, not to please himself, but for our advantage. Born in the likeness of men, under the cloud of being a bastard, Just imagine, he lived his whole life under the cloud of that shame for us. Not to please himself, but to please us, to give us the grace that we need, the mercy that we need. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He was tacked naked on a public thoroughfare and bore the wrath of God in our place. Like, do you realize, I think sometimes we can get so familiar with the story of the gospel, that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was not just like, oh, I need to go through this because, you know, but really, I'm super son of God, you know. This is, no, this was, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's not a joke. That's not a perfunctory statement. This is so serious to look at the wrath of God that we all deserve, like, 
all of that concentrated in one cup, like it says in Isaiah 51.7, the cup of the Lord's wrath, the cup of staggering. Would you remove that cup from me? I don't want to drink that, yet not my will, because I didn't come to please myself, but yours be done. This is really what we deserve, to drink that cup of wrath. And Jesus drinks that cup of wrath in our place to the dregs so that he can give us the cup of salvation. That's your God. That's your Savior. That's what Jesus did for us. If that's so real and so big in our minds and hearts, then living for the good and advantage of others is is almost, it almost becomes a reflex. There's power to live that way. That's exactly what Paul was saying in Romans 15, 1 to 3. So, let's just put these two texts together now and understand how they are in harmony and they're complementary, and then we'll try to tease out a bit of what it looks like in practice. So, Let's put it together first, conceptually. Um, I told you that laying, laying them side by side is actually, a key, it, it, it gives us this key guiding principle, kind of sheds light on the path for cultivating and protecting gospel culture. And this isn't original to me. I've seen this kind of summary in so many words a couple different places, but here it is. If the choice for you or me is between pleasing God or pleasing people, pleasing man, please God. Galatians 1.10. If the choice is between pleasing others or pleasing yourself, please others. 1 Corinthians 10.33. You see it? If the choice is between pleasing God or pleasing people, please God. If the choice is between pleasing others or pleasing yourself, please others. Do You see how they go together? They're not contradictory, but they're complementary. So that puts it together kind of conceptually. You know, they're not at odds. They're in deep harmony. We've got to hold them together. But our biggest need is not to have some nice little summary. Oh, I wonder how that works together. You know, that's not what we need. We need to live this deep harmony. It's a whole lot easier to to speak those two lines than it is to live those two lines. Right? So a gospel culture needs... Strong spiritual backbone and soft Christ-like hearts. Not one or the other. We need both. We need strong spiritual backbones committed to the truth, committed to King Jesus. And we need soft, loving hearts softened by Jesus. Not one or the other, both, and not the other way around. Do you know how often that happens? We have like a wet noodle back bone because we're afraid and so we compromise and then we have a hard heart and we're cold and selfish (laughs) or you could put it this way a gospel culture needs thick skin and a soft heart and we should be aware of the danger of the reverse happening You get criticized, you go through trials, you have relational disappointments, you put yourself out there and you try to love and then it just gets, like there's no response or you get kind of, um, you know, it just goes badly. And what do we do? Sometimes we retreat and we get thin skin and a hard heart. 
calloused heart. It's just so easy for that to happen. And you can imagine the kind of culture that results if we have hard hearts, thin skin. Or wet noodle backbone and hard hearts. We need to be tough and tender, just like Paul was in these two passages, just like Jesus was and is. If we're going to cultivate, cultivate and protect a gospel culture, whether it's in our homes, in our relationships, in our church community, in our community group, the way that we interact with our neighbors, we're going to need God's Spirit to make us stronger and sweeter. We're going to need the Spirit of God to make us tougher and more tender. So we need to become like I mean, to change the metaphor here a couple different times, we need to be like oaks of righteousness. Trees are amazing. I, on Monday, wasn't it Monday? It was like that crazy windstorm that kicked up, and, and uh, really quickly the, the storm blew in, and I went outside just because I wanted to feel the wind and see the, the clouds moving, and um, I, I don't know, I love storms. And it was coming quickly. And... I said, Beth, come here. You know, we just kind of stood out there and looked at the, the clouds and watched it. And we just noticed trees are amazing things. They are so firm and they're wonderfully flexible in the right proportion. And that's what we need to be. So there's the proper rootedness and groundedness and firmness and stability and solidity and a healthy flexibility and tenderness to a tree. So this is parents with children, students. Oh man, are you going to need this if you're going to stand for Christ in a loving way in your school? If you're going to try to share the gospel with someone, especially with some of the caricatures there are about Christians in our culture, we're going to so need the toughness of Christ and the tenderness of Christ so that we know when and where to stand firm, when and where to flex, and how. So, to quote Ortland again here, every one of us is wired to lean one way or the other toward emphasizing doctrine, truth, you know, backbone, or culture, love, relationships. Some of us naturally resonate with truth and standards and definitions. Other, other, others of us resonate with feel and vibe and relationships. Whole churches, too, can emphasize one or the other. Left to ourselves, we will get it partly wrong, but we won't feel wrong because we'll be partly right, but only partly. Truth without grace is harsh and ugly. Grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. The living Christ is full of grace and truth. We cannot represent him, therefore, within the limits of our own personalities and backgrounds. Yet as we depend on him moment by moment, both personally and corporately, he will give us wisdom. He will stretch us and make our churches more like himself, tough and tender, so that we can glorify him more clearly than we ever have done before. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why, in God's wisdom, he puts us together in a church and we're so diverse because you know what? I might be too soft in this category and you're strong there and you're going to help pull me to that appropriate balance or you're going to correct me in that way and vice versa. Okay, So we need gospel grace and truth. We need to stay on the saddle, the greasy saddle. Guess what? Sorry to offend you. The grease is on your pants, my pants. We bring it. 
to the table on these things. It's so easy to fall off the horse on one side or the other. So picture it almost as a continuum or, to use another analogy, like a slippery slope. So up here, the ideal here that Paul's getting at with these two passages is God-pleasing people-pleasers. People-pleasing in the right sense. And ultimately desiring to please God. See, when we are uncompromising and resolute, that's a good thing because that's leading us to this place of God-pleasing, but it's easy to slide down into coldness and harshness. You see? God-pleasing people-pleasers up here, people-lovers up here. Over here, we get compassionate and sensitive. It's appropriate because we're on our way to where we should be up here on the top but it's so easy to slide down into wishy-washy people-pleasing and chameleonry. Tracking with that? Sorry, I don't, I'm not like with it enough with the computer to have that picture on the screen. I tried, and I was like, forget it. I'm not even going to try this. Um, so if any of you are gifted at that, help. Um, so we need to stay on the saddle, to go back to the greasy saddle thing, ride along on the path of love. There's the ditches of compromise, sacrificing our integrity because we want to make everybody happy. And then there's the ditches of alienation and unnecessary offense. It shouldn't be our personality that is the offense. It should be the gospel if it's going to be offensive. And sometimes we can add our personality to that and push people off unnecessarily. So a church with no toughness and lots of tenderness will be superficially sweet And yet it can become a very dangerous place. Nobody's going to be willing to deal with sin. And then everyone will have to deal with the unchecked cancer of sin. If nobody's willing to draw doctrinal lines in the sand, we're just going to be blown and tossed by the winds of public opinion. And yet, on the other hand, a church with toughness and no tenderness, yeah, they might be uncompromising, but in a dangerous way. It can become like a police state. People are fearful, and then they start putting up masks, and they're fake because they're afraid to be real because they're just going to get hammered. And you know what ends up happening? How many times have you seen this? You know what happens when, when the pendulum is over here and people get sick of it? Or the pendulum is over here and people get sick of it? We start to see the error of our ways, and you know what the devil loves to do? He loves to take the momentum and drive it to the other side. So this is Jonathan Edwards, 300 years ago, with this wisdom. It's, become, it's been a common device of the devil when he finds he can keep men quiet no longer than to drive them to excesses and extravagances. Um, oh, I typed that in wrong. Um, He will hold them back as long as he can, but when he can do it no longer, then he'll push them on and, if possible, run them upon their heads. We shall be in danger after our eyes are fully open to see our errors to go to contrary extremes. The devil has driven the pendulum far beyond its proper point of rest, and when he has carried it to the utmost length that he can and and it begins by its own weight to swing back, he probably will set in and drive it with the utmost fury the other way, and so give us no rest and, if possible, prevent our settling in a proper medium. Okay, have you ever seen that happen in an individual's life or in a church? In the dynamics, the culture of the church? So if we're aware, we can fight that overswing. So for instance, if you grew up in a harsh, 
critical, sin police, police state kind of right over loving environment. People got hurt, they got turned off. And you know what can happen? People can become so fragile and feel such a right to the perfectly compassionate, tender, empathetic manner that someone has to approach them, that if someone doesn't approach them that way, they write, out, they write off every exhortation. Because it's, you must be Job's friends, long-lost relatives. And I, I won't listen to anybody but the perfect counselor or something, as if that person exists. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. That happens. We need to be careful. People can become hard to counsel because of these dynamics. You went from backbone with no heart to all heart and no backbone, all tenderness and no toughness. Okay, we have to be able to speak the truth in love, both and here at Bethel, but we have to hear, we have to be able to hear the truth spoken in love, and not always with perfect love. We've got to learn this path. We need to cultivate this environment. And only the gospel can give us both the humility and security and the confidence and boldness to do it, to live it. So, if it's a choice between pleasing God and pleasing people, please God. If it's a choice between pleasing yourself and pleasing others, please others. And all the while looking to Jesus, the perfectly tough, the perfectly tender one who did not come to please himself but gave himself for our advantage. And there is tons of resource and grace and strength to be able to, each of us, cultivate this kind of gospel culture. Do you see how gospel culture is the responsibility of each and every one of us, all of us, Churches are made up of individuals. Our cultural characteristics come from a growing number, kind of a critical mass of people who reflect, hopefully, Christ-like, this Christ-like combination. And the more kind of inertia you get in that direction, it just is a wonderfully self-perpetuating cycle, but it can also go the other direction as well. So let's really pray and seek God's grace that this will be the kind of culture that we cultivate. <clears throat> oh God, the gospel is such good news. You are so good. You have been so wonderfully tender with us and even your toughness is in the service of your love for us. And we thank you that Jesus came willingly and he came not to please himself but to build us up, to save us, to rescue us. He came for our advantage. And I pray that that would just grow more and more sweet and wonderful to us as the days go by. And Lord, please give us grace to embody this kind of strong backbone commitment to pleasing you, to your truth, to no compromise, and tender, just sweetheart people 
that are brimming with the love of Christ. That combination is so rare, Lord, and we each know our tendency to fall off the horse on one side or the other, and I pray that we would just long for you to change us, to keep changing us individually and as a church so that you get glory as we look more and more like Jesus in his beautiful toughness and his beautiful tenderness so that we can shine brightly and radiantly with your light. Please do it. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.